check out my new book, Reach All Readers at reachallreaders.com. When you pre-order, you'll get special access to my Science of Reading mini course. Learn more at reachallreaders.com. Hello, Anna Geiger here from The Measured Mom. Welcome back. Last week, I shared an older episode, an episode about my reaction to Emily Hanford's article at a loss for words. For me, it was finally what helped me see that some things I had been doing with balanced literacy were not the right way to teach reading. I began to learn more about the research, and that's brought me to where I am today. Well, today we get to hear from Dr. Heidi Beverine Curry, and we learn what it was for her that helped her see that what she was doing wasn't quite right. For her, it was actually in her doctoral program when she realized that balanced literacy and three queuing were not backed by research and she's very entertaining fun to listen to i think you're really going to enjoy this week's episode you'll also learn how the reading league can help you make a difference in your classroom and school today we welcome dr heidi beverine curry to the podcast welcome thank you so much anna it's really great to be here with you today so i found heidi um, through a youtube video from September 2019, where she was sharing a presentation about the three queuing systems and related myths. And it was very interesting and also very funny. And so I knew that you would love to hear from her to hear how she got into education, the misunderstandings that she had, that many of us have had, and what brought her to where she is today. So can you start by talking to us about how you got into education? I started out um, in TV, radio, and film. That, oh, was, wow. my, that was my first choice of, of career. But uh, once I started studying TV, radio, and film, I I wasn't really satisfied with it. And I felt kind of a calling toward, toward education. And I wanted to do elementary education. And when I came out of it, I, I realized as I was teaching that I didn't really know how to teach a child to read from the ground up, you mm-hmm. know? Did I really have the knowledge and skills I needed to take a little one and turn them into a reader? And uh, no, no, I didn't. That's so interesting because um, when I graduated from college, I think we're we're pretty similar era. So I graduated in the late 90s. And I, my first position was actually a multi-grade classroom of middle grades. So third, fourth, and fifth grade. And I, I was really, at that time, not interested at all in primary grades because I said, I just really don't know how to teach kids to read. Like, that's a huge responsibility. Which- I remember one assignment that we had where we had to read 50 pieces of children's literature and get a little recipe card box um, and fill out index cards about uh, the major themes in the book, about what grade level we thought it would be appropriate for, and some activities that might go along with it, you know, Um, any sort of response activity or an art project or something. Um, but, but really it was nothing about, okay, here's how kids learn to read. Here's what the brain does when it reads. It was a lot about children's literature and a lot about running records. I have taught children's literature courses at the graduate level many times and I enjoy it. I love it. But, you know, being an expert in children's literature does not prepare you to prepare teachers to teach children to read, right? Mm -hmm. These are two very different things. There's a split between the faculty who work in schools of ed who prepare teachers and um, the disciplines, the multiple scientific disciplines that study reading in an empirical way. So when you look at um, cognitive psychology, neuroscience, communication sciences, 
even linguistics, you can find really rich findings and bodies of knowledge that that can inform the teaching of reading. And historically, there has been a a gap. Um, you know, at the Reading League, we used to say that we wanted to clear the pipeline between mm -hmm. the scientific research and and practice, but you the more we got in there, the more we realized there was never a pipeline. It's not like there was one that was all gunked up. It just hadn't mm -hmm. been built. So that's that's really what we're aiming to do. Yeah, and a lot of people talk about them as silos, like they're all individual. And I, I think that a lot of the rhetoric around balanced literacy contributed to this because I know like in your presentation, you talked about Reggie Routman's books, Invitation, Transitions. I loved those. I had them all, they all um, marked up. They were in our, actually our, my undergrad um, college's bookstore at the time. And um, she talks a lot about you're the expert, you're the teacher, you know what's best. And when you when you really get that hammered in enough times, it's hard to consider that someone in this seemingly completely unrelated field who is not a classroom teacher really could tell you something particularly useful. And so for me, that was a barrier for a long time. I've seen active sort of boundaries, right? Like, no, you know, you study your brains over here. I work with children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So after, did you teach then before you started getting your doctorate or your master's degree? I did. Yeah. So I, my first job was a self-contained special education class, which was okay. a really interesting job to take after coming out of a dual major inclusive ed program. Um, the descriptor was profound disabilities. Okay. And so I had my students, I had 12 year old boys, <laughs> I had four <laughs> boys, uh, and they were all nonverbal and oh, wow. had lots of personal care issues. And I was completely unprepared for that job. Yeah. I loved the children very much, but um, I did not feel particularly prepared to teach them. Fortunately, I had a ton of teaching assistants and occupational therapists, speech therapists, uh, physical therapists that taught me how to do the job over the mm -hmm. course of um, but again, like that was just something else that I was not prepared for. I knew how to write an IEP and I knew how to play cooperative games and I knew how to build a circle of friends and invite Janet in and build relationships and all of this. But, but I didn't know how to, well, th there was a lot that I didn't know how to do, mm -hmm. um, but I learned a lot of that on the job. And okay. then I taught for another eight years in a different school district. And in that school district, I worked exclusively with fourth graders, but I worked in different capacities. Sometimes I was, and it was always in an inclusive environment. So sometimes I was, I started out as the gen ed teacher, and sometimes I was positioned as the special ed teacher. Sometimes I was positioned as a reading specialist. Um, but in general, I worked with fourth graders for eight years. And every year it seemed to me that kids just weren't where I would expect fourth graders to be when they show up at the beginning of the year in terms of their ability to read. And, you know, I would, I would ask around, we had, they weren't called instructional coaches. They were called curriculum consultants at the time. Okay. They were like instructional coaches. And I would ask them, you know, Hey, what can I do about this? What can I do about that? And, and again, it's not their fault. It's just the system is broken. Right. Mm -hmm. We do the best that we have. And I would get things from them like, well, you know, if they haven't learned how to get the words off the page by now, if they can't decode, 
you're going to need to teach them compensatory strategies. And, mm. you know, are you make sure you, do you have them at their instructional level? And I'd be thinking, yeah. well, at their instructional level, how do they get better? And what even does that really mean? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of teaching at that point before the science of reading, before that term got thrown into the zeitgeist and now it's like, kind of a no shame zone and you see all these teachers going yes I want to learn you know at that time in the mid 90s the the term science of reading wasn't out there and -hmm. I think you had a lot of people kind of trying to fake it till they make it it you know it's not a great idea to be a new young untenured teacher in a building and like stand on top of your desk and say hey everybody I don't know how to teach reading can Mm -hmm. Anybody got this figured out? Can you help me? Like you just kind of pretended that you knew. And um, as you can tell, that kind of behavior is kind of hard for me. (laughs) I'm a little more direct than that. So, um, you know, I did do a lot of asking and I think it annoyed people, you know, when I hear, well, just give it to them on tape and Mm. they just need access. And yeah, uh, but, but all sorts of things that were not, oh, here's how we make them better readers. It was, here's how we get them around not reading so well. Yeah. And, and over the years, it really started to frustrate me. And I figured, you know, I'll get my master's in reading education because I feel like that's what I need, but I just got a lot more. That's where we really dug in heavy to the three queuing systems, um, guided reading, a lot of Faunus and Pinnell, they were really, uh, becoming, super popular at that time a lot of a lot of a to z text gradient stuff a lot of more running records more miscue analysis so i came out of there with a third new york state teaching certificate that said i was a reading specialist k through 12 and i still really didn't know um the the technical knowledge that i felt like i needed to to make a kid into a reader that's so interesting because I know the same thing for me when I got my master's degree. Um, so I finished it in 2005 and it took me a lot of years cause I was doing it while I was teaching, but, um, definitely I was, when I graduated with the focus on reading, I was certified to be a reading specialist. I didn't end up using that, but I was supposedly ready to do that. And at the time I probably thought that I could, but I just didn't know what I didn't know, which was so many things. And so I was very connected to three queuing, um, I thought that, so when I ended up teaching first and second grade, they had leveled books. I definitely did not want to use many decodables at all. I felt like that was stifling fluency and comprehension, and we needed to teach them all these ways to arrive at a word so that we would put comprehension first. I I was very confident that this was the right thing to do. And then years later, when I had my own children, I started teaching them to read. I did do some phonics with them, of course, because I did believe phonics was important, but mostly it was leveled books. And, you know, because they come from a background with strong literacy and language and just naturally they were able to learn that way. Um, but I I know they could have learned better if I'd been more explicit in some things. I remember my oldest so she's 16 now, but when she was first learning to read, she would read the Calvin and Hobbes comic books. Do you know those? Mm -hmm. And she called them, she, she was a good reader. I mean, she knew what she was reading, but she called them Calvin and Hoobs, (laughs) which is not phonetic at all, but it's just because I hadn't given her enough instruction. Um, and then I wrote a blog post about three queuing. I had the whole graphic like you had in your presentation about how the three areas work together. And 
way back in 2014. So just a year after I started my business, someone commented, you know, this is not supported by research. And, and I was like, what? <laughs> like, I just graduated from grad school a few years ago and we, we were all into this. And honestly, I, I didn't really know what to say. Um, and at the time I had four little kids and it wasn't something I wanted to dive into, but I, I was just sure she was wrong. I was sure she had to be wrong. Um, so unfortunately it took me a, a number of years after that before I finally started looking into it. Can you, can you talk to us about your, your moment, um, that you talk about in the webinar, which was so funny <laughs> about where you talked about three queuing and realized you were missing something big, big time. Yeah. Not, not my best moment. <laughs> All right. So yeah, I, I, I mean, to give a little context to it, I I ha did everything I could with this Faunus and Pinnell stuff. I went and saw them talk. If I was in my office right now, I'd pull out. I have books behind my desk. They're mm -hmm. autographed. I would go oh, see yeah. them speak. The covers are falling off. There's notes all over. Things are highlighted. There's sticky notes hanging out of everywhere because I just thought I wasn't doing it right. So I just kept pouring over it, pouring over it, trying to do it better. And finally was like, you know, I just don't think this works. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I, I must be doing something wrong. But I didn't question the three queuing systems. I was questioning the Faunus and Pinnell. I was questioning guided reading. I was questioning mm -hmm. the A to Z text gradient. Like I wasn't, my thinking wasn't so sophisticated where I was thinking of the big picture. And also I wasn't thinking, oh, I really need the science of reading because I didn't know what that was either. Mm -hmm. I just knew there had to be something better than giving up on kids when they were nine or 10 and saying, well, just give it to them on tape. Yeah. So, so I had my son and I, you know, I taught one more year and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave the classroom. I'm going to get a PhD. That's probably my best bet in getting some of these answers that I know must be out there. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, I did find those answers, even though I didn't really know what I was looking for. But the only reason that I found those answers, the only reason that I stumbled upon the science of reading is because I had to choose an elective that fit with my childcare schedule. Oh, interesting. And so that elective, because there was no science of reading coursework required in mm. my doc program, mm. oh. um, that that elective was the cognitive psychology of reading with Dr. Benita Blackman. So the first night of class, I walk in, I don't know what the cognitive psychology of reading is. I have no idea what I'm getting myself into. This is my first doc seminar. And we sat around um, a U-shaped table. I think, do I tell this story in the video? Yeah. And, and <laughs> the, the person next to me was Maria Murray, first time I met her. So she's the founder and CEO of the Reading League. And that was 2006. Uh, and then, and on and on, there were, you know, maybe a dozen people around this U-shaped table that had already had some coursework with Benita, knew a little bit about the science of reading. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And uh, Benita uh, went around around the horn and wanted to know our understandings of how reading works. Tell us, tell us how reading works. And she started with me, which I thought was really mean. <laughs> like I'm the new kid, right? And all I knew was the three queuing systems. And I felt pretty confident. Like you said, I felt pretty confident. And I looked her dead in the eye. And, you know, I've come to start talking about this with a with a Harry Potter sort of 
Ben, but are you a Harry Potter person, Anna? I've read all the books. Okay. So, so when Benita asked me what my understanding of reading was, I ended up having this like Dolores Umbridge moment. So Harry <laughs> Potter folks will know. And if you don't ask somebody, but, um, you, Benita smiled and said, and Heidi, how do you understand reading to work? And I looked her dead in the eye and, and gave her a lecture on the three cueing system. <laughs> You know, you see, there's the semantic, the syntactic, the graphophonic. You can't over rely on one or the other. You do this one as a last resort. Reading's about making meaning. Then you can give these tests called running records and do miscue analysis and find out where kids are relying. And then, I don't know, teach no them reliance. Something else here. Just Nobody kind of really knows what to do afterwards. <laughs> but yeah. Right. And I, and I think I outlined that in the video as well. Um, but but to me, she was Dolores Umbridge. I mean, she's looking at me. She's going, mm-hmm, yes, oh, oh, mm. <laughs> you know, just, just this drippy, sticky, sweet, smiley. But I could tell there was like evil thoughts going on behind those eyes. <laughs> and I'm like, I am not, I know I'm saying all the right things, but I am clearly not saying any of the right things like I mm -hmm. it, it was a very uncomfortable experience for me and then I kind of you know scuttled out and she's like oh, okay thanks and then went to Maria and said Maria can you now she had been Maria had been her research assistant for a number of years oh wow point. so uh, Maria, how do you understand reading to work? And Maria says, well, the connectionist model tells us a blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I did not have the reaction I should have had, which was, wow, that's fascinating. I can really learn from her, right? Because that's not what we do uh, when we're feeling insecure, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. I was just kind of like, note to self, don't sit next to Maria next to <laughs> So... The next person was Chris Munger, who went on to become the associate dean. And she was like, well, dual root theory posits. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and I'm like, eh. so, you know, at that point, I realized the problem is me. And I must have turned a million shades of red and wanted to, like, just hide under the table. And I don't know that I really heard or processed much of what happened in the rest of that class that night. I just know that I kept it home, kept it together long enough to get home and, and s walk in the door and I made eye contact with my husband and I was just like, Wah! ugly cry. <laughs> and I'm like, I want to do over. I'm not smart enough. I don't know what I've gotten myself into. I'm all over mm -hmm. my head here. And he was, he was great. He was like, you know, I see you. I hear you. I feel you. <laughs> sure would be great you know because we really made a lot of sacrifices for you to do this thing you said you needed to do yeah. so how about you just buck on up and get back in there and i was like okay okay <laughs> but that you know 12 weeks 16 weeks whatever how long a semester is um was world changing for me life changing mm -hmm. for me and, and i will say that benita went from being my my Dolores Umbridge to my professor Dumbledore. She didn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was mm -hmm. just my impression the first time. But I realized that by signing up for that course, I had inadvertently stumbled through platform nine and three quarters. 
and that this whole world of reading research was like Hogwarts. It was this whole academy, this whole parallel universe, this whole body of knowledge that had always been there, had always existed. I just didn't have access. And mm-hmm. somewhere mm-hmm. deep inside, I knew I was missing something, like something else had to be out there. And and I was lucky enough to find it. But that semester was brutal. I mean, I went through serious emotional roller coasters. I mean, there there was a whole grieving process yes. of having to throw out everything that I thought I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, plus the idea of, you know, having had to pay thousands of dollars to learn this stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and then nine years of teaching kids with this as my centerpiece, mm-hmm. it didn't feel good. It didn't feel good. And, and I, I still see like there are two particular names and faces that I see that, you know, those kids are going to be in their thirties now. I hope somebody taught them to read because I sure didn't. I, I know we all have those. I have, I definitely have kids like that in both my, when I taught the middle grades and then when I taught primary and really sweet, bright kids. But obviously what I was doing was not helping. Like I just encouraged them to practice more for their parents to read to them more. And it did not occur to me that I need to be giving a specific kind of assessment and nail down where the holes were. I did not understand the value of phonemic awareness Mm -hmm. or systematic explicit phonics. And yeah, it's hard. It's hard. And the grieving is real. It is real. And that's why I think when some people join like the big Facebook groups, they're a great place to be. But when you first join, it can be very overwhelming. Like I literally felt sick to my stomach um, the first month or two, just because like you said, to realize that so much of what I thought was true was actually not, right. was very alarming. Yeah. What, what year about was this when you were taking that course? It was 2006. It was the fall of 2006. Okay. Which is very interesting because um, that's a long time ago. And many of us are just finding out the science of reading like right now. And sure. And it's obviously been around for, I mean, for decades, for as long as research has been done. But a lot of the modern understandings are not brand new. What was next for you after you learned, after you learned the science of reading? I spent a year collecting data for my dissertation. I studied how one school took the RTI legislation and made it into a thing that happened. It was a qualitative study about how schools made use of quantitative research evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it, you know, it took me years to write the dissertation while I still had to work full time and decided to go back into public schools as a literacy coach and be the person that I wish I had when I was looking for support and answers. Um, So I did that for another nine years. And my colleague, uh, Stephanie Finn, and I uh, through a perfect storm of you know, resources and lovely people and supportive administrators were were very supported in our in our attempt to turn a very whole language balanced literacy district into one that follows the science of reading. It took us a while. I mean, it took us a good four years to really see a full change in the achievement data that that resembled what's possible when you use the science as your guide versus something else as your guide. Um, 
a number of folks that I went through the doc program with, Maria in particular, you know, we kept in touch, but we were all working in our own little places trying to get traction. And it's hard to be that one person that's that's trying to make change. You know, it's and it's hard if you're even one of three or four or five people trying to make change in a huge system. So, you know, we could we could make change in in one little system, but it didn't really get anywhere. And so, uh, you know, Maria has her story, too. She became despondent and was like ready to quit education entirely and become an alpaca farmer. Oh, I have heard her say that. <laughs> yes, that is true. But Maria was different than most of us because she never learned Balance literacy. Balance literacy, whole language, Mari Clay, Faunus and Pinnell, Calkins, the Goodmans. She didn't learn that stuff. She only knew the science. And then when she finished her doc work and went to um, be a professor at a university, she encountered things that were really disheartening to her. I mean, she spent years working on these multi-million dollar National Institutes of Health funded research she knew what worked and and didn't realize how few people didn't know what worked she hadn't been part of that culture and she would assign tasks to her students like um you know do this phonological awareness assessment and then write a reflection about it she would get feedback from from her students and sometimes from the cooperating teachers and sometimes even from the administrators saying, you know, we really don't do this phonemic awareness stuff. You need to teach them how to do a running record and find instructional levels and do miscue analysis. Uh, or, you know, yeah, we don't really teach phonics here. Uh, you really need to teach them how to do guided reading groups. And mm -hmm. she was like, what even is this? What is going on? And then yeah. that prompted her to look into it and was like, hey, there's no research base here. And it was, you know, it was depressing. There were a lot of us who have been banging that drum and, and yeah. being very frustrated for a long time trying to make change. And, um, you know, Maria, one day in the midst of her depression and alpaca fantasies, <laughs> had this idea, you know, like we can't all just be spread out trying to do this. We need to work together and we're not going to change it from these in these structures. We're not going to be able to change it from the inside of school districts. We're not going to be able to change it from inside higher ed. We need to be our own thing and then partner with organizations to help transform and restructure and, and reeducate. Mm -hmm. So that's how the Reading League was born. I would guess that many people listening to this are familiar with the Reading League. I've talked about them before and about how their journal I highly recommend. But maybe you could talk to us a little bit more about how it got started, where it's based, you know, its conferences, how it's spreading into states, and how it can help just the everyday classroom teacher. Sure. Great. Thanks for asking. Um, you know, we are in Syracuse, New York, right in the middle of the state, upstate New York. And when the Reading League started, we were strictly a volunteer organization. Um, it was 2015-ish when the idea was conceived. It was 2016 when the, um, you know, our 501c3 became official and we were a nonprofit organization. And how we started out was the only service we provided was we had a free professional development session on the second Thursday of every other month. 
So it was kind of like putting on a wedding every other mm-hmm. month. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rhea's, you know, 90-year-old Italian mother would make cookies so people get oh. smacked. And, uh, that, that's just kind of how we rolled. And our first few sessions were at like a like a fire hall, bingo hall, and then another mm-hmm. one was at a public library. And it was standing room only, you know, the people were all seated, people were lined up along the walls in the back, we had folks sitting on the floor, we were exceeding fire code capacity. So that was a problem. Simply because of space, we would have a school district say, yes, you can use our auditorium, um, as long as you know, all our teachers can come. And we said, yes, of course, all your teachers can come, but also anybody else can come too. Mm-hmm. We would travel around, right? Different schools would invite us in, but with the understanding that all local teachers were welcome. And there were usually around two to 300 people at each session. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were like, holy cow, we've really tapped into something. But these teachers were working all day on a Thursday and then you know, maybe going home real quick to their families and mm-hmm. <laughs> making some dinner or something. And then 6 to 8.30 p.m., mm-hmm. hanging out for two and a half hours of really intensive professional development related. Just to learn, not to, to get credit, but just to learn. Yeah, they got no credit. They got no money. They just wanted to learn. Mm-hmm. We had some some investors in the nonprofit world that really wanted to help us achieve our mission. In 2018, we were able to really begin our expansion plan. And then in 2019, in January of 2019, I left my full-time job to be full-time with the Reading League. So what does your daily work look like now? So I'm, I'm the chief uh, academic officer. So mostly what I oversee is the professional development department. So we have, we have different things at the reading league. We have the journal, we have a TV show that you can watch on YouTube called Reading Buddies. We have uh, an annual conference. We just had our first uh, West Coast Summit mm. in, in Las Vegas for um, emergent English learners, emergent bilinguals. And uh, then we also have a a really robust professional development department. So in the professional development department, we have um, basically two pathways. So if if you are a lone wolf, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. and and you're in Vermont and you're in a school and I'm I'm not picking on Vermont, I'm just picking Vermont, you know, Mm -hmm. say, say you're in Vermont and you are a teacher in your school and you're like the only one who's really interested in the science of reading, like then our online academy is for you, right? You can Mm -hmm. sign up and then when you show up for online academy, we cap it at 25 so that we can keep it more intimate. But um, we also have our school-based professional development partnerships. what happens is the first step is to schedule an administrator introduction day and we spend a full five-hour day with the administrative team in a school district and we talk about um, what the science of reading is what it isn't Uh, we look at some data from some schools that we've worked with to show what's possible when we build our knowledge and then act upon it and we also talk about how important 
a role the administration plays. So, you know, when, when we work with school districts, we're different in, in three major ways. Uh, than than most PD. The first is that we have those admins for a full day before we work with teachers. Mm -hmm. And we let the admins know that we expect them to be at the PD and be present and not be in the back on their computers and not Mm -hmm. take phone calls and, and to put themselves front and center and say, I've got stuff to learn too. Let's do this together. That seems to yield the best results. Another way that we're different is that we're not training folks on a product that they've bought, right? A lot of PD is you buy a thing and then they send somebody to show you how to use it. And we're not doing that. What we're doing is building knowledge and yes, some practical skills, of course, but what we're doing is building a, a teacher and an administrator's internal store of knowledge. So when they make those hundreds of decisions that they make every day about uh, language and literacy instruction, they're making it from a store of knowledge versus what they think might be more fun or Mm -hmm. what teachers pay teachers or what the school down the street is doing or who has the flashiest ad campaign that month in their teacher magazine, right? Mm -hmm. So So you're you're teaching them to be wise consumers. Yes. They're helping them to make better decisions. I get phone calls text messages, direct messages on Twitter all the time. Can you just give us a list of programs that are oh, like, I know. everybody wants that. <laughs> everybody wants everybody that. And, and we say, you know, we could, but it wouldn't really be helpful. That wouldn't be helpful because a, there's no such thing as a perfect program. Mm-hmm. And even if there was, if you put it in the hands of teachers who don't have a strong knowledge base about evidence-aligned practice, and it's supervised by administrators who don't have a strong knowledge base of evidence-aligned practice, that that perfect program, that phantom perfect program, is not going to be implemented in ways that get you the results that you should expect. You know, and then the third thing is we have a data manager at the Reading League, and we want to make sure that that the work that we are doing in these partnerships is yielding achievement results. Well, that is super interesting. I did not know about that last part about how you guys work with schools to do all this. That's incredible. I I don't know of anybody else that's doing something like that because it's always about, like you said, it's always about a particular program. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right now we support 68 school districts. Um, 67 of them are in the U.S. and one's in Hong Kong. <laughs> oh, wow. That's very cool. Is that kind of neat? Yeah. So do you know how many states off the top of your head have a reading league now? I believe Chapter? 26. I think okay. we just pulled on number 26, give or take, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's 26. So if a teacher's listening to this and their state doesn't have a reading league chapter yet, what could they do? Well, they could email... Andrea Setmeyer. Um, it's Andrea, A-N-D-R-E-A, at thereadingleague.org. She is our chapter director, and she will give you all things necessary for, for setting up a state chapter of the Reading League. Awesome. Well, that's incredible. Thank you so much for taking time to tell your story and share all this. We could probably talk a lot longer, but I try not to keep my episodes too long. And thank you for all the work you continue to do. Thank you so much for having me, Anna. I appreciate it. And thank you so much for being, you know, that teacher that that wants to learn more and that has opened, 
your mind and your heart to new ways of thinking about reading because even though it it can hurt us and it's it's a painful process to 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 grieve all of those things that we believe to be true um, we come out of it on the other side feeling better about our teaching yes we're seeing those results and our kids deserve it so we can go through a little pain for that i think that's right it's all worth it yep you can find the show notes for today's episode at themeasuredmom.com forward slash episode 126. Talk to you next time. That's all for this episode of Triple R Teaching. For more educational resources, visit Anna at her home base, themeasuredmom.com, and join our teaching community. We look forward to helping you reflect, refine, and recharge on the next episode of Triple R Teaching.